turn to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, page 811, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. We've been going through this the last couple of months, this most famous of passages, Jesus' remarkable teaching, which really encapsulates what does it mean to be a follower of him. And as we've seen so far, the, the teaching that Jesus, his primary thrust main theme of, of the Sermon on the Mount is the character and the conduct of his people and how he wants us to live in such a righteous way that it would be salt and light to the world. And we saw how Jesus gives six examples of how he fulfills the Old Testament and what our righteousness should look like. And again, that's the main thing that Jesus is really driving home here, our righteous character and our righteous conduct that he wants from his people. And Last time, we kind of changed gears a little bit as we opened up chapter 6 because Jesus started focusing on avoiding hypocrisy. You guys remember that from last time, avoiding hypocrisy? And we said how when Jesus speaks of hypocrisy, not only does he speak about how our words and actions need to match. That's very common in our culture. We say you're a hypocrite because your words don't match your actions, right? Jesus says, actually, it goes a little bit deeper Not only do your words and actions need to line up, but your heart needs to be in the right motivation as well. You can have someone who does and says the right things, but their heart isn't in the right place. And Jesus pointed out how in his day, it was very common for the religious leaders, and probably for others as well, that their motive would be the approval of others. They wanted to be seen by others. They wanted others to give them words of approval to fuel their pride, and they weren't really doing it out of a heart to serve God. And so Jesus, though he's starting a new topic in one sense, he's really not, because if we're going to grow in righteousness, church, we have to avoid the snare of hypocrisy, don't we? Because it's a universal danger because of pride within us where we want to be noticed, we want to be applauded, and that can really serve to motivate why we do stuff instead of just serving God for the sake of serving God. Amen? So it's very critical. And so Jesus, as he began in chapter 6, he, he, gave, he gave in verse 1 a general warning about hypocrisy, and then he mentions three specific religious practices and how we need to avoid the hypocrisy that was being practiced by the religious leaders of his day. He talked about giving. Then he talked about prayer And then he's going to talk about fasting. And with each of these three cases, he gives the the, the pattern where the religious leaders of the time would serve out of a desire to be rewarded by the approval of others. He says, I want you to do uh, something else. I want you to serve out of a desire to, yes, be rewarded, but not by the applause of other people, but by the reward that you will receive in heaven. So, Jesus went through, as I said last time, he, we, we got as far as verse 8 where he talked about giving and he talked about prayer. Last time, where we left off was right at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. And this is very important. Jesus kind of breaks his pattern and he goes into a, a, a digression, if you will, about the Lord's Prayer. And we should all be glad he did, right? Because don't you, in your own prayer lives, struggle sometimes and What exactly should I be praying? Lord, how I want to pray, but teach me to pray, right? Well, Jesus tells us here how he wants us to pray. 
And so after he gives us this instruction, then he gonna, he's going to cover his last example, avoiding hypocrisy when it comes to fasting. Then the passage closes by Jesus talking about our treasure in heaven. We'll finally discuss what exactly is that reward that we should be seeking from God as we serve him. Okay? And we want to have that heartfelt mindset and motivation that we're serving out of a desire to seek God and his glory, not hypocritically. So if you're with me, everybody at chapter 6 there, let's read verses 1 to 8 to just quickly recap what we covered last time to refresh, or if you're new today, just so we're on the same page, and then we're going to touch on briefly the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus said again, this is verses 1 to 8, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that you do what you need before you ask him, pray then like this. And so then Jesus ushers us into how we should pray what is called the Lord's Prayer. In some sense, it should be called the Disciples' Prayer because this is a prayer that Jesus wants us to be praying. Um, he wants his church to be praying this, these words. And so he says here in verse 9 to 13, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we, as all, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, in this short amount of words, Jesus captures the true essence of prayer. Let me just point out a few things. To start, he address, addresses his prayer and how we should pray to the Father. Jesus revolutionized prayer by referring to God as Father. In the Old Testament, there are some occasions where the, the, the nation of Israel might refer to God as the Father. But this was revolutionary in that individuals were referring to God as Father. Jesus deepened the warmth and intimacy of our relation to God while still at the same time maintaining this profound sense of reverence that we're to have toward God. Our prayers aren't to a distant deity church, are they? But to a personal God who desires that we share our hearts. Prayer is not simply telling God a list of things, right? It's not a ritual or a technique. But prayer is about a relationship with your creator and also your redeemer. God made us to know him and prayer is the apex of that relationship. And so prayer should be profoundly personal as we address God as Father. And so then after that, Jesus gives six petitions to pray. What's interesting 
is that the first three petitions focus on God. The second three petitions, set of three, they focus on our needs. Has it ever struck you before that when Jesus teaches us about prayer, he really stresses the fact that prayer is primarily about God and his glory? Yes, we should pray about our needs, but he wants us to focus primarily on God. Does that challenge you? I know it challenges me because our default mode, isn't it, to go into our own needs and our own requests and then maybe, oh, by the way, to remember God and his glory and and what he's trying to accomplish in the world. But he wants us to be praying about his glory. And that's actually the very first petition when, when Jesus says that we should pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first petition is that God's name is hallowed. When we say that we want God's name hallowed, we're saying that, God, we want your your name, which is your character, your essence. We want it to be lifted up and glorified. We want your name to be hallowed, to be revered, to be honored. We want God to be glorified in this world. Amen? Pastor John Piper writes about this idea of hallowing God, hallowing his name, where actually God is the one hallowing his own name. He is glorifying his own name. He says the first and overarching thing that we are told by Jesus to ask God to do is that God would exercise his jealousy for his name, that God would display the greatness of God, that God would make much of God, that God would overcome blindness to seeing God, that God would overcome indifference to God, that God would remove obstacles to knowing and admiring and loving and trusting and treasuring and obeying God. So we, church, we we pray, we want to come before God and say, Lord, do something about your name. Make it lifted up and high so that people are drawn to you, that people would see that the idols that we're chasing, religious idols and secular idols, that they're nothing, that nothing compares to knowing God personally. And we want to see your name and your fame spread around the world. That is what we should be praying for. And, of course, as we pray, we should be praising God for who he is, thanking him for salvation that he's brought into our lives, the blessings that we have, no matter how far and deep you might be in a pit of despair, there is always a reason to be thankful for God doing something in your life. Amen? And so we should always keep that at the very forefront of our thinking. So church, this changes how we pray if we start, God, we want your name to be hallowed. Second petition is God's kingdom to come. Uh, So what is the kingdom of God? Well, this is what we sing about Sunday after Sunday. Jesus brought in the kingdom of God. He inaugurated by his ministry. He demonstrated it by the miracles he did, casting out demons to show, look, Satan, there's there's a new sheriff in town here, okay? There's someone who is greater than you who is spreading a message of hope and redemption around the world. And then, of course, the cross and the resurrection was the pinnacle where Jesus said and demonstrated that a new, a new uh, dawn has occurred for mankind here. And so when he was victorious on the cross and the resurrection, the Bible says that is when all authority was given by him to spread his kingdom around the world. Matthew 28, 28, verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus rules over the nations right now with this redemptive reign 
and he wants his church to be praying that his kingdom would come. So that means that we're praying for the kingdom to advance person by person. That means that we're praying the kingdom would grow in our own hearts, that we would have a desire to see the kingdom advance. Amen? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what we're supposed to seek. So as we're praying this, it's going to spread like a fire within our own church that more and more of us are having a desire to see the kingdom spread. And then we're also to be praying that his kingdom is going to be coming one day in the future. It's almost like, you know, we have these ropes and we're just praying the kingdom down. We want to see it come down, that new kingdom to arrive here. And God honors the prayers of his people as we're praying, Lord, we want it to come. We don't want to wait anymore. We want you to come back and return quickly, Lord Jesus. So praying his kingdom to come. The third kingdom or the third petition is God to accomplish his will. You know, in heaven, there's no talking back. (laughs) There's no delays. Everything goes perfectly according to the plan and will of God. On earth, not so much, right? And so we're praying that his will is done on earth just as it is done in heaven. And so by praying this, we're praying that when God, even when things are difficult, God, we want your will to be done no matter what. Jesus modeled this for us, didn't he, later in his own, the night before his crucifixion, when he was agonizing over what he faced, knowing that he was going to face the cross. What did Jesus say? Not what I will, but what you will. He was ready to surrender to the will of God. And so, Lord, when we pray to the Lord, we want to pray for sometimes the circumstances we're going through to change, but ultimately we want God's will to be done. Not a sense of resignation, but a sense of saying, God, you're good. And your glory is what I want. Amen, church? So then, kind of starting off there with our hearts centered on God, then the second set of petitions focus on ourselves and our needs. So that fourth petition, when Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, that is focusing on our physical needs. When Jesus lived in his day and age, there was a a more critical sense of people's living day to day, just surviving. And so they really needed to be praying these things. In our day, yes, we have more surplus and more uh, abundance that we don't have maybe that same sense of a critical need. But I think we should always be reminded that we are nothing. And and, and every day, the things that we have, it's a result of God's goodness and grace. And we should never reach a place of saying, you know what? That sounds selfish for me to pray that God would supply my needs. I'm going to worry about other people. You know what that might actually be? It's actually a little bit of pride to say, I'm self-sufficient. I got enough in the bank account. My health is doing okay. Life is good. Lord, worry about somebody else. It's only the grace of God you're at where you're at right now, friend. And so let us always be humble and praise God for the things that we have and to be reminded that the very breath that we take with every breath of our lungs is a reminder that we need God, don't we? Humbly, let's add or present our needs to God. And and not only just physical needs like food, but other things that come up on a daily basis like healing or wisdom for tough situations, safety, and so forth. The fifth petition is God forgives sin. 
as he says there, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven us our debtors. He's not talking about financial things. He's talking about sin, where our sin creates a debt to God, where we should have been righteous, and instead we were unrighteous. And so there's a debt that is created there. And so God wants us to be praying on a daily basis that we would seek forgiveness. Every day we sin. I'm your pastor, and every day I come before God with a slate that needs to be wiped clean because I'm a sinner just like you, and I need forgiveness. 1 John 1.8 says, if we, sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so we need to confess our sin. But the glorious truth is that God forgives you of your sin, each and every sin that you ask for forgiveness. Psalm 32, verse 4 and 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my, my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So confession should be a part of our, sin, of our prayers on a daily basis. Also asking that we would forgive others. People who have done things to us, that we would release it and say, God, I forgive that person for what they did for me. Does Jesus say, forgive people small stuff, but not the big stuff? No, he says all of it. All of it. This is a quick commentary. Go down to verses 14 and 15, talking about forgiveness of sin. It says there, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive their trespasses. Jesus is not speaking of forgiveness in terms of our redemption there. He's not saying you have to be able to forgive people to be saved. You're saved by believing in Jesus and and being uh, made right by faith in Christ. But what he is getting at here is that if you, have, if you harbor a spirit of bitterness and unforgiveness, that relationship, that fellowship, that closeness that you have with God will become spread apart. Because he says, if you're going to be a follower of me, you have to be willing to forgive people. The sixth position is avoiding temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just as we need God to provide for our physical needs, we need God to protect us from Satan, whom Scripture calls a roaring lion. First Peter 5.8 says that about Satan. Left to ourselves, Satan would destroy each and every one of us. So we need God's wisdom and strength to avoid his schemes. And so if you, if you struggle with particular sin, perhaps the greatest advice I could give to you is to get on your hands and knees every day and ask God to lead you away from temptation. And he honors that prayer, church. He will start growing you and seeing the dangers and the schemes behind that, how it's destroying and damaging your life, and gives you a heart for righteousness to turn away from those things that will harm you. So Jesus gives us this incredible model how to pray. Church, we should seek to implement this in our own lives. But before moving on, I just want to make a quick point. We should personalize these prayers. What we don't want to do is just mechanically recite the Lord's Prayer and think, boom, I I said it, now I'm good. God wants us to use this as a template, not a script. Does that make sense? He said pray like this. He didn't say pray this. Not that it's wrong to pray it, but he wants you to personalize it. So if you're praying for forgiveness, don't just say, Lord, forgive me for my sins today, and I'm gone about my day. He wants you to stop and reflect, how did you sin before God? How can you ask for forgiveness? How can you ask somebody else for, who, uh, who has wronged you, how can you forgive them? So we need to take time to personalize those things in our lives. 
So that was the Lord's Prayer in about 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, as I said last week, last summer I went through a, a whole message on the Lord's Prayer. would encourage you, there's a, some CDs out in the foyer if you want to listen to more in depth. But just trying to keep with the flow of the passage here where Jesus is focused on avoiding hypocrisy. Let's keep going where Jesus gets back to talking about warning about hypocrisy when it comes to fasting. This is his third and last example. So fasting, of course, deals with abstaining from food for the purpose of heightened prayer, where you're praying fervently for a petition, you're broken about a situation. That's why we would fast and pray. So in verses 16 to 18, Jesus says these words, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their rewards. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen by others, but not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, to start, Jesus mentions the, the conduct of the hypocrites. So these folks, when they fasted, they made sure that they looked as bad as they could look. They made sure they had a gloomy look on their face, right? They disfigured their faces. So everybody knew, whoa, there's Bob there. He must be fasting today. Man, he looks miserable. <laughs> Is it what they do? I don't know. They probably didn't wash their face as they would normally do. They might get a, a little bit of ash and kind of smatter it on their face, you know, to make it look like they were really serious about it. Why'd they do that? Jesus says it's because they wanted the approval of others so that other people would look at them and think, man, that's a holy man or woman of God right there. Look at the way they look. But you know what's true? Is that we do that, don't we? We judge by the outward, don't we? We see someone look like that and we think, wow, that person is a holy. They might be. But it's the heart that Jesus is after, isn't it? And as Jesus points out, their, their reward is the approval of others. It's crazy, isn't it? That fasting, which is supposed to be a sign of tremendous humility, actually becomes a badge of pride. Wow. It tells you something about our hearts. But Jesus says that when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, carry on like usual. Okay, <laughs> so carry on so that people do not know that you're fasting. Brings up the quick question, is it wrong for people to ever know that you're fasting? I don't think so. Maybe you're fasting uh, for the first time and you just need someone to pray with you because this is very challenging for you. I don't think it's wrong to ask someone, hey, would you pray for me? I'm going to be fasting tomorrow. I don't think that's wrong. You're not trying to get their approval. You're asking for some help, aren't you? Or maybe you're going through a very extended fast and you'd like to ask a few people to be praying for you to carry you through that. Or maybe you decide, hey, let's get a group of folks together because we're going to really focus and concentrate on something. Again, you're not doing it so you're patting yourselves on the back. You're doing it to get accountability and encouragement. So I don't think it's always wrong to have someone know that you're fasting. Again, as Jesus would say, it's all about your motive, isn't it? Why do you want other people to fast and pray. One other thing really quickly is a footnote there. Jesus assumes that we will fast. 
Did you notice that? He says, when you fast. He didn't say if you fast. He says this with all these practices. He says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. So it's an assumption that followers of Christ will fast on occasion. That's a whole other sermon. And as always, I would advise you to make sure that you're okay health-wise before you would do some type of fast. But just something to be thinking about if that's not a regular practice in your life. All right, now at the end of the passage here, we saw that Jesus, again, mentions being rewarded by God. He does that four times in this passage. In each example, he says, don't seek the approval of others, but seek to be rewarded by God. So now you're, you're probably wondering, what is the reward, Jesus? And I haven't asked, answered it so far. Let's keep going here. This is the final part of our passage, which deals with treasures in heaven. Let's read verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Excuse me, where neither moth nor rust nor destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus commands us not to store up treasures on earth. Why? Because none of those treasures are going to last, are they? They're all impermanent. He talks about moss, how they would destroy. And if, if, if people back in those days, you know, they wore, most people just wore very common garments. You watch the movies of the people back then. There was not a lot of, a lot of bright colors back then, were they? Only the rich people might wear that or wear like a really nice uh, material like silk. But even those valuable materials, a moth could come in and wipe it all out. Rust could destroy your valuable garment, I mean your valuable metals and possessions and so forth. And even if somehow you preserved all that stuff, guess what? You blink and a thief might come in and take it. Every treasure on earth is impermanent. Therefore, we should stir treasure where it is permanent. Where is that? It's not the storage place down the road. It's in heaven. There your treasure cannot be destroyed or stolen. You say, well, what is this treasure that can't be destroyed or stolen? I believe Jesus is referring to the same thing he's been talking about. The rewards in heaven is the same thing as the treasure in heaven. And rewards are very prevalent, church. It's very prevalent in the, in the Old Testament and New Testament. God talks about how he is going to reward his people on Judgment Day. We've seen it already four times in this chapter. Back in chapter 5, we saw it in verse 12. Jesus said about enduring persecution... Rejoice and be glad for what? Your reward is great in heaven. In verse 46 of chapter 5, he said, Love your enemies. Why? For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Every Christian will receive the same thing in the sense that we all get a resurrected body. And you won't be disappointed at all. You're all going to have a place in the new creation. We're all going to be praising and rejoicing in God's glory. In that, which is the main thing, we're all the same. But Scripture does add that we will be rewarded based on our lives, our righteous character, and our good deeds. That doesn't earn you salvation, but it does lead to reward. You say, well, what's our reward? Why, I don't think it's going to be any kind of material thing like a crown or gold or whatever. The book of Revelation at the very end describes the new creation. And you know how it talks about streets that are made of what? 
Streets that are made of gold. So whether that's literal or figurative, the main point is that the new creation is going to be magnificent and splendid. Gold is the building construction material, right? It's the asphalt. I don't think we're going to be wowed by the asphalt there, okay? Rather, I think our reward is honor from God. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about Judgment Day. He says that to his faithful servants, he will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Romans 2, 6-7 says, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So to those who are seeking glory and honor from God, not from man, but from God. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says of Judgment Day, then he will give each one his commendation from God. I don't know what will happen exactly on Judgment Day, so don't hold this against me. This is my opinion. But it very well may be possible that God replays your entire life before you and he honors you for all of the growth and righteousness that you have ever seen and experienced in your life and all of the righteous deeds in your life. You say, why would you say that? Well, it says in Matthew 10, 42, Jesus says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You say, well, that might take a long time. Well, we're going to be in heaven, aren't we? There's no more time there. They say your whole life can flash before you, right, in an accident or something. Who knows what God can do in that moment? But somehow, we are wired to seek honor. God made us this way. And there's a key difference between a sense of honor and a hypocrite's longing for the approval of others. The approval of others fuels and satisfies your pride. Whereas honor satisfies a sense of justice, that it is right and fitting when things are done to have a sense of recognition. Not to get approval by others, but a sense of honor. And I truly believe that God has made us this way. That is why each and every one of you, I guarantee you, no matter how tough you are, within a few minutes, each one of you would get emotional if someone in your life stood up and honored you and said, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, whoever, stood up and said, you have made such a difference in my life. The sacrifice you have made for me, I cannot express in words what, is that, what that has meant to me. To tell a mom or a dad, I can't communicate enough what a difference you have made, and you have changed my life forever. Every one of us would get emotional. God has wired us that way. Not to be a hypocrite that seeks the approval of others so we get so prideful, but a sense of recognition of justice and gratitude. And this is what God is going to do one day. You know, I, I was watching a video clip a couple of, couple of days ago, and, and I apologize about the Dallas Cowboys reference in advance, but it was a surprise announcement to Jimmy Johnson that he was going to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And if you know Jimmy Johnson, he was a hard-nosed, no-nonsense coach, but when they came in and said, you are going to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, this hard-nosed man got very emotional and basically speechless. 
And you know what he said afterward? When you really put everything you have into something, it's nice when you're recognized by others saying, hey, we appreciate what you did. So on a human level, that meant so much to Johnson as it would to us. Church, I'm sorry we're a little bit late here, but I just want you to pause for a second. Can you imagine what it will be like to be honored by God, the one who truly matters, in front of all of God's people who aren't jealous, but who are celebrating with you? Oh, praise God for that. Yes, we remember that. Oh, you made a difference. Oh, we applaud. Celebrating together all the marvelous deeds and all of the deeds that no one ever saw. That is what we should live for. We should live for the approval of God. That is the opposite of the hypocrite who lives for the approval of people. That's why Jesus says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a nice summary for this whole passage. Your heart is the core of who you are. So let me ask you, what do you treasure in your inmost being? The the reward of God, the approval of God, or the fleeting approval of man? Treasure that is permanent or treasure that is impermanent? Is your heart today to say, Lord, I want to honor you with my life. I want to seek that treasure. And I wait with great anticipation for that day when you will honor every single act that was done for your glory. Amen, church? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And we do pray that our treasure would be in heaven. Be glorified by our lives, we ask it, Lord. And my prayers for each one of us here today, that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. May today be a tremendous motivation to renew our efforts to serve you out of a right heart and with a renewed zeal to bring glory and honor to you. Lord, I pray for someone who's never trusted you as Savior and Lord. May they realize that this world is passing away. And there's an opportunity to receive Christ, to spend eternity with you. They will humbly ask for forgiveness of their sins and to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of their lives. They can know you and know you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen.